0: This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to In 39 Countries Around the World. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com
1: Thank you Victoria we appreciate you opening up for us today and of course we appreciate you as well listeners for tuning in and our listeners from all over the world and today our Shade of Blue story hits on several different parts of the world we'll get into that in just a moment as Victoria said I am your host Scott Lunsford allegedly the retired law enforcement officer researcher writer detective Deputy Sheriff, SRO, all around wearer of too many hats and not enough time off. And of course, we are coming to you today from our podcast studio located high atop one of the ridgelines in the Madison County woods on a mountain in western North Carolina. And we do appreciate you guys for tuning in with us. Now, no matter where you're listening from, grab a friend to listen with or send them a link. Spread the word about the felon file if you like it. And if you don't, send them a link anyway. They might like it. Now in law enforcement, when you're in rookie school and you're going through driver's training, the instructors are very quick to point out that in responding to dispatch calls for service, you can't help if you can't get there. The point is, of course, if you drive in a reckless manner and have an accident or cause an accident, you're not doing anyone any good. Be it your fellow officers or the citizens you're trying to get to to help. Different states, and for that matter other countries, have laws and rules for pursuit driving and emergency driving by emergency responders. Now, When I started in the 1980s, there were generally three types of responses. Regular response, just like you're driving to the store, then, of course, there was code 2, which was running with your blue lights on and emergency lights. And then, of course, code 3, which was blue lights and sirens. Now, today, they're pretty much, law enforcement enforcement's taught, the regular driving aspect, non-emergency driving, and code driving. Blue lights and sirens. You don't have one or the other. You have both. You want to make sure if you're driving in an emergency situation, people can see you. Driving code is a request for other vehicles to move over, to give you the way. It's not a license for driving like a bat out of hell, as opposed to what t- some TV shows might show you. I personally know several officers who were killed and have been killed while operating your vehicles or working a scene on or beside the highway. this is the region for the move over law in most states you can move over and slow down if an emergency vehicle is working beside the road or in the road in a lot of places in most places it's the law and it really is a good idea while the good guys need a quick way to get to the crime scene or whatever emergency they're responding to we really can't forget the bad guys after all, we are the felon file. When committing a crime, the perpetrator doesn't usually want to wait around for the good guys to just ride up. He or she wants to get ghosts as quick as possible. Now, this is today's topic for our collection of Shade of Blue stories. I recently had the privilege the other day to meet with some of the staff of the Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, called Alcatraz East. It's a vast collection of crime and criminal artifacts, as well as an excellent learning location for young people. Later, we will broadcast our interview and our sit-down discussion with the museum's curator in an upcoming Felon Fowl podcast. Or, depending on the timing, it might already be online, and you can listen to it now after you listen to this one. Now, in their collection of crime artifacts, Alcatraz East Crime Museum has on display a collection of vehicles. Some really interesting ones. They have a surveillance van. They have a sheriff's patrol car parked out front. They also carry serial killer Ted Bundy's VW Bug. An OJ Simpson's white Ford Bronco, famous for the West Coast Interstate Highway chase. Let's start at the beginning, let's start with a classic. The infamous vehicle of Al Capone, the 1928 Cadillac, and it wasn't just a Cadillac, it was a 1928 Cadillac Model 341 sedan, and it's believed to have been owned by Chicago mobster Al Capone. And this is a perfect example how crime can change how we look at what was in reality at that time frame, a very common car. In this case though, there's really no question that the car belonged to or was driven by Capone. To recap a bit, we all know Al Capone was the mob leader who took over the Chicago outfit at 26 years of age involved in the probation law violations of his day made illegal alcohol available for anyone who wanted it. He was linked to some of Chicago's most notorious violent crimes, including the famous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929, a crime that investigators couldn't or perhaps maybe they wouldn't, depending on who you talk to or whose book you read end up charging or making a connection with his organization in that particular murder as well as other illegal business deals or enforcement actions but like many famous bad guys in history and in the media of today he was arrested and convicted for tax fraud which got him off the streets and behind the bars at the real Alcatraz despite a reputation for being A flamboyant clothing dresser and his flamboyant behavior he liked the best of the best. Big Al reportedly liked to travel kind of in a stealth mode though this wasn't your everyday ordinary Cadillac sedan that he was traveling in. Compone had installed an inch thick bulletproof glass and 3,000 pounds of steel armor plating to bulletproof the people that were inside the car. He had also installed an authentic police car siren and what might be the first police scanner or police radio band receiver for a non-law enforcement car. When federal agents finally arrested Capone, the government seized the car. Don't waste not whatnot. It was actually used by the Secret Service after the attack on Pearl Harbor to protect President Franklin Roosevelt in his travels. The 1928 model believed to be composed, is or was officially documented in 1933 but some have questioned its authenticity but generally it's pretty much accepted. Typical of celebrity type crime cars, the car has been shown in numerous museums and overseas. In 2012, the car was reportedly sold at auction for $341,000. There is also the possibility that Capone had three of these cars made. One of the alleged vehicles is thought to have surfaced in 2006 in England at a car auction. But, where is the third? Good question. Might still be in a garage or a basement of warehouse of some building in Chicago. Or possibly it's in Johnson City, Tennessee, just down the road from where we're at, in the town called Little Chicago, Johnson City, Tennessee. Probably not, but it is cool to think that it is. Our next infamous car, the 1934 Ford V8 sedan. Due to their two-year crime spree, the terrible twosome Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow reached the point in their life that they became a simple two-word description: Bonnie and Clyde. The 1934 V8-powered Ford they stole on their crime spree has lived on with its own career as a museum attraction. Part of the attraction, of course, is more than likely that the fact that the two did die inside of it. Even with the glass shattered and the sedan's sheet metal sp- sprayed with bullets, over 100 bullet holes, the car's original owners fought to get it back, and they were able to do so eventually. After the owner's divorce, though, the 1934 Ford became a moneymaker for traveling carnivals and other roadside attractions that would rent it from this new owner. Basically a sideshow, a nickel for a look, at the display now this really took off after the movie about Bonnie and Clyde's adventures that came out in 1967. the car in fact changed hands many times some attractions have been known to display imposter versions of the car now the actual car the last confirmed location is a place called whiskey pete's casino in prim nevada where it can be visited and viewed free of charge. But you should check first and before you make the memorable trip. You want to make sure that it's still there because it has a history of a lot of changing of hands. Now the vehicle used in the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde directed by Arthur Penn with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, that car Is on display at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Got to go by and look at it. Really cool. Throughout his year-long quarter-million-dollar robbery crime spree, John Dillinger bought a 1933 Essex Terraplane, red in color. Dillinger used the Red Essex Terraplane to keep one step ahead of police as much as he could. He used his car in an escape vehicle numerous times, including on March 31, 1934, when, fleeing from law enforcement in St. Paul, Minnesota, his car was shot at, leaving two bullet holes in the front panel of the car. Bullet holes that still can be seen today. Oh yeah, and Dillinger took one round in the leg as well. With his brother in the car next to him, Dillinger's shootout with police caused him to crash the Essex into an Indiana field, and he had to abandon the vehicle. Following Dillinger's last stage bank robbery in South Bend, Indiana, though, where he killed another policeman, FBI head J. Edgar Hoover offered $10,000 reward for Dillinger. He put $10,000 on Dillinger's head. Now, a month after the announcement and all the publicity about the $10,000 reward, a friend of Dillinger's, an illegal immigrant, a Romanian prostitute and brothel owner, in Chicago, Illinois, and Gary, Indiana, using the name of Anna Sage, she tipped off the police. Now, she was under the impression that the FBI, if she helped them out, would help her and keep her from being deported if she did help them. Sage told the FBI guys in law enforcement that Dillinger planned to attend a film at the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Armed agents waited outside the theater for the signal, which was supposedly a red dress that she was going to wear. In reality she wore an orange dress. But that doesn't sound as cool as the woman in the red dress. Upon exiting the theater, Dillinger sensed there was something afoot. And realizing he was in trouble, he took off. He sprinted into an alleyway where he ended up being fatally shot. On the night of Dillinger's death, after the police had left the scene, things were quiet once more. It's been documented by photographs that someone wrote in chalk on the street near the Biograph Theater, the following epitaph. Strangers stop and wish me well. Just a prayer for my soul in hell. I was a good fellow, most people said. Betrayed by a woman, all dressed in red. And supposedly that's where the story, The Lady in Red came from, is from that epitaph. On a quick side note, the FBI guys, moved Anna Sage from Detroit and then to California. She received a $5,000 reward. Now if you remember, that's only half of what she had been promised or at least half of what J. Edgar Hoover said he was going to give as a reward. $10,000. That's what had been promised. Not getting the other $5,000. In 1935, she informed the reporters of the deal to keep her in the country. But deportation proceedings had already begun. The FBI told her, well, we can't stop the procedure because the government bureaucracy and poor communication in the federal government. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And never mind about that $5,000 we have you." Well, she appealed the decision to court, and that didn't go anywhere. Got to keep Jay Edgar happy. And she was deported in 1936 back to Romania. She lived there until her death from liver disease in 1947. Now there have been many murders that have occurred in cars and different types of vehicles. Still one that really impacted the world would be the shooting in a 1911 Gaff and Swift Double Phantom. And this would be the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The luxury car maker had made this particular vehicle, a 1910 model built in the double phantom style of a limousine. It was not actually the Archduke's car at all. The royalty of the empire did not travel with or in their own vehicles. Transportation was outsourced at their destination whenever they had arrived where they were traveling to. The car in fact belonged to a logistics officer. Count Franz Henrich. Now, Count Henrich was more than likely an appointed officer, but his vehicle was equipped with a low power 31.5 horsepower engine. Now, its operation was kind of unfamiliar to the drivers of the Archduke, and this would end up proving a dangerous factor that would come up later. Now, though Kennedy's assassination is probably the most famous in an automobile, Ferdinand's likely had the most impact worldwide. If you recall your world history class, Ferdinand's assassination set off a chain of events that started World War I, an event that killed 20 million people, both military and civilians, with over 21 million people wounded or injured. Now you might not know that the gunman who killed Fernan was not the first person to try to kill him that day. A grenade had been tossed at the car earlier in the day but it had bounced off part of the canvas folded up awning that was at the back of the vehicle and it ended up landing on the ground and rolling under another vehicle in the motorcade and then exploding. Fernan is famous for shouting out right after the explosion so you welcome your guests with bombs. Now after the bombing attempt the route was changed of course several other assassins who had also set up an ambush along this route they ended up leaving including our killer. The shooter getting hungry went to a close by cafe where he had been stationed to get something to eat. The Archduke and his wife while traveling decided that they would go take some time and visit the men that were injured by the bombing attempt that was meant for them and they told the driver to take them to the hospital. Now the driver being unfamiliar with the city on the way made a wrong turn. Realizing his mistake he tried a multiple point U-turn. Unfortunately when he attempted this this location was directly in front of the cafe that the shooter was eating at the driver dealing with the unfamiliar route an equally unfamiliar vehicle stalled the car midway in turn five feet away from the shooter who with the rest of the cafe customers had stepped outside to see what the excitement was in the street A few seconds later, before he could get the car started again, two shots were fired and the Archduke and his wife were mortally wounded. The actual car is on display in Austria. Uh, Victoria, can you pronounce the name of this museum for this country boy?
0: Sure. You can't pronounce it, Scott. Here's G-Skeitleisch's Museum in Vienna, Austria.
1: Thank you. At this museum in Vienna, visitors can see the damage from the bomb blast that happened on the back of the vehicle and the following actions and damage to the vehicle that happened during the assassination. Our next vehicle, 1935 Mercedes 770K limousine. Now many of you may not know this, but apparently Adolf Hitler didn't know how to drive. Still, he did like to be driven around in a Mercedes limo. He felt the car was imposing and gave a commanding presence. Apparently, being a Nazi is all about the look. Enough said. To quote Indiana Jones, "Ah, Nazis, I hate those guys. If it wasn't imposing enough, Hitler had each of his 770Ks outfitted with armor plating enough armor to they weighed 5 tons apiece this tank weight. The vehicle also had a mine proof floor and thick bulletproof glass to keep would-be assassins from shooting. All of this armor and weight did nothing for the car's mileage of course. The car only got uh, according to records three miles to the gallon. Now Dimitri Lemakov, a Russian car collector who owned one of the six known Hitler limos, viewed buying one of the cars as a symbol of Russian victory. He said, quote, For Russians, the Second World War isn't historical. For us, it happened yesterday. And buying a Nazi car is like sticking one finger up to Hitler. Unquote. Translation, shooting Hitler a bird which everybody enjoys doing recently an Australian billionaire by the name of Cleve Palmer though now this is the guy who wanted to build a second Titanic for actual cruising leaving out the whole iceberg thing of course Palmer bought the Hitler car from a Russian collector and he plans to display his collection in Australia with several other famous and infamous vehicles to be something worth looking into in the future. Our next vehicle, the 1961 Lincoln 74A. Though Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated under similar circumstances 50 years prior, John F. Kennedy also rode in a convertible in November of 1963. No doubt history will debate the circumstances of the kidney assassination for years. And it would have been much harder to kill Kennedy had he not been in a convertible, of course. The car, codenamed SS100X, had been modified by Ford's Advanced Vehicle Group to meet the Secret Service specs. It cost about $200,000 extra worth of work to upgrade the vehicle. Although, not one part of the car was made bulletproof. The car remained in the government service after the assassination. However, it was no longer convertible. They put a roof on it. Today, the Lincoln is on exhibit as part of the Henry Ford Museum in the Presidential Vehicles section. Back to our bad guys. Ted Bundy's 1968 Volkswagen Beetle. By many accounts, serial killer Ted Bundy was a charmer. Driving around the Northwest in his tan 1968 VW Beetle maybe a bit of an odd car. You really wouldn't expect that of a serial killer. Classic Beetles tend to stand out a little bit and draw attention. But apparently, it also looked very disarming. One of the things a serial killer and kidnap would like about the car. Bundy moved around a lot before authorities became suspicious of it. And when he was first arrested, it wasn't for kidnapping or murder, it was for having a collection of burglary tools in his car. The Volkswagen proved to be his undoing though. As it was searched for evidence, and it ended up holding quite a bit, evidence had not been yet connected to some of the crimes he was later charged for. Hairs matching several missing women, blood stains, and other forms of physical evidence. Although he was arrested for murder, he managed to escape police a couple of times and get out of jail. When Bundy was finally caught for the last time, he was driving a Beetle, Volkswagen Beetle that he had stolen, uh, an orange one this time. Now for a while, Bundy's VW Beetle, the tan originally owned by Bundy, was on display at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. Today, though, You can find it just over the mountain at Alcatraz East the Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Gotta go check it out. Sometimes though the bad guy doesn't own the vehicle, like we've said. Sometimes they rent it. For example Timothy McVeigh's rented Ryder truck would be a good example. Rental truck loaded with a mixture of agricultural fertilizer diesel fuel and several other deadly chemicals, a rolling bomb. It was used to perpetrate a most tragic event in American history. When it was set off, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols' truck bomb did some major heavy damage. A third of the Alfred P. Murr building was reduced to rubble. Almost 170 people died, many of them children from the daycare. McVeigh's escape from the crime scene was one of the shortest in criminal history. Really, 90 minutes after the bomb, McVeigh was pulled over by an Oklahoma State trooper who noticed he was missing a license plate on the getaway car. The trooper located and found that McVeigh was also carrying an unregistered concealed weapon. He ended up being arrested for that. When the FBI guys caught up with him, he was already in jail. Though McVeigh was quickly caught and brought to justice, he did not leave an easy trail for investigators to follow. A huge investigation took place. The FBI conducted over 28,000 interviews. They amassed three and a half tons of evidence before they closed the case. And sometimes the vehicle is not really a vehicle, it's something else entirely. For example, our next vehicle is not one that really is commonly found on the roads, it's specialized. As a matter of fact, it was even more specialized when the driver got through with it. This was Marvin Hemeyer's bulldozer. Hemeyer was angry about a zoning decision affecting his business by his town that he lived in and worked in. Hemeyer was a muffler repairman at a new concrete construction site. A local municipality had planned interfered with his shop. Not getting anywhere in the normal regular channels of bureaucracy, he decided to seek revenge and take matters in his own hands by plowing through the offenders' homes, garages, and businesses. In June of 2004, Hemeyer declared war on the town of Granby, Colorado. The town was attacked by the muffler man armed with a homemade tank built from a bulldozer making this very interesting vehicle related crime. Of course it wasn't easy for police to get at it after he had started his attack on the town. As a mechanic and experienced welder he had reinforced the dozer slash vehicle with thick sheets of metal and concrete to make it bulletproof. He mounted cameras on all four corners of the vehicle so he could see the perimeter, where he was going, and what was going on around him. He also mounted several guns on the bulldozer, which he reportedly fired indiscriminately as he traveled through the town at about 5 miles per hour. Obviously a devoted, skilled technician, he took time and planning to make those modifications. Motivated by the grudge, apparently held against several members of the town government, When he thought he had done enough damage and gotten his message across, Heemeyer ended his life with a shot to the head. Even though the attack had stopped, it still took investigators several hours to reach him through the bulldozer's armor. For over a year and a half, Heemeyer had used his welding knowledge to fortify a D-355A bulldozer, and he planned his attack. The results of a man who thought he had been pushed way too far by bureaucracy. Another man who thought he had been pushed? Mr. Charles Manson and his followers, the Manson family. They moved into the Baker Ranch south of Ballarat, traveling through what was left of the town to get there. In October of 69, he and his family were arrested at the Baker Ranch, they're outside of Ballarat. Ballarat was the last place Manson was a free man. Today has basically a small store run by a gentleman by the name of Rocky Novak, and that's about it. The remaining buildings are mostly in ruins and the location is generally called a ghost town, and it attracts very few tourists. Now, if you do visit, you might see, if it's still there that is, The only remainder of the Manson's family connection to this forgotten place. The shell of an old 1962 Dodge Power Wagon truck. Now there is a disagreement over who actually owned it. Definitely not Manson. He didn't own anything. Some believe though it belonged to Charles Tech Watson. And the truck broke down in Ballarat while he was trying to escape. It is known that Tex did own one of two Power Wagons that the family used for transportation. According to former members of this so-called family, Charles Manson liked to drive. It's been written that he picked his vehicles for fun and practicality. The ranch and former hideout in the remote area of the Death Valley required a four-wheel drive vehicle and a truck made it even better. To that end, the family had access to a couple of 1962 Dodge Power Wagon horse that they used to get to and from the Baker Ranch. As of 2010, and a little bit after that, one of the Power Wagons was still sitting, or at least a shell of it, on a roadside in the desert outside of Ballarat, California. Although I haven't been able to locate it recently, there are some posted images from Google Maps less than two years ago that show the vehicle still parked beside the road. Now, in its heyday as a mining town, Ballarat had a population over 500, now nearly deserted aside from the occasional curiosity seeker. It was almost the perfect hideout for Charles Manson and the family at the time. Except for that one part where they found him and ended up later being convicted. Ballarat does have another notch in popular culture. At the beginning of the movie Easy Rider when Peter Fonda takes off his Rolex and throws it away, he does so in Ballarat. I wonder if the Rolex is still there. Anyway, next vehicle of infamy, the 1993 Ford Bronco of O.J. Simpson. It was called the Trial of the Century, but in all the reading and research I've done, if you look back, i found... There has actually been numerous trials of the century. A phrase to increase readership in the past and in today's viewership. The details of the event from the night that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman died may never really be known. Did former NFL star and actor OJ Simpson commit the murders or not? A lot of dispute going both ways. But one fact that can't be disputed, we do know. He led the police in a 40 mile per hour chase through Los Angeles in a white 1993 Ford Bronco. I know because I saw the pictures and man is it well documented. The chase was televised live. One of the first times American media and the news networks devoted so much of their resources to such an event. The Bronco was being driven by former NFL player Al Cowlings, Simpson's friend and owner of the vehicle. Cowlings claimed that Simpson forced him into the SUV and threatened him with his gun to supposedly drive them to Nicole's grave. Even though the pair were trying to elude capture by the police, they moved at slow speeds, providing a perfect scene for a fleet of news helicopters. After the chase finally ended, Simpson surrendered in his own driveway, and the media circus on the tragedies and the murders began. 1993 Ford Bronco itself is a two-door V8 model. It had a life of its own for the most part. At one point, a limo service had it. What a perfect car for that prom night out date. Or, think about it, leaving the marriage ceremony under a rain of rice and birdseed, Nothing says we're gonna stay together forever than a trip in the O.J. Simpson white Bronco? I don't see it. One California resident who was an owner at one point told a local TV station news crew that he's barely driven the Bronco because it was more valuable to keep it in its pristine condition. The Bronco name in general didn't fare very well either. Ford discontinued the model in 1996, two years after the chase. But it has come back, if you'll notice in the ads. The O.J. Simpson trial had America on its edge. Racial tensions divided a lot of people. One of the most memorable and more famous scenes from the whole happenings was the slow speed chase that O.J. went in in the Ford Bronco. Many people like I said, mistakenly believe the Bronco from the chase was owned by O.J. Simpson. It actually belonged to Cowling. Both men owned the exact same make and model of the vehicle because Cowling had purchased his Bronco intentionally identical to the one owned by O.J. Simpson. Simpson's Bronco, in fact, had been located outside his home the night of the murders with traces of blood from both of the victims inside it. The SUV was seized as evidence. Simpson was trying to escape the police because he believed he was being suspected of a crime he was not guilty of. At least he said those were his thoughts and his reasonings when he was in the chase. The chase did go national, if not international. It shut down highways in Los Angeles as he drove with a cavalry of police interceptors following and an air force of news helicopters overhead. The chase continued for about two hours, with police, of course, on the phone and attempting to keep him talking and from taking his own life. The chase eventually ended at Simpson's house in Brentwood, where he surrendered. Now iconic footage of the hunt was never actually shown during the trial for fear that it would it would sway jurors inappropriately. The Bronco from the infamous chase is displayed as well at, guess where? The Alcatraz East Crime Museum. I know, I saw it there, and I took a picture of it and had my picture taken with it. I wanted to do a podcast recording inside the Bronco, but they unfortunately they they told me no, I couldn't. But well, we did do an excellent interview with the curator of the museum, so check that out on Fallon File when it comes up. And those are our shade of blue on the infamous criminal vehicles. If you tune back later, we're going to have another one on some more cars and vehicles that were used. In some of the more famous Shade of Blue stories that are out in the world, be sure to come back next time for another podcast, another collection of Shade of Blue stories here on the Fallon File. We'll be back in about two weeks. Be sure to check out our website, FallonFile.com, LunsfordAuthor.com, where you can locate some of our books and find out a little bit more about us. And even help us out by making a few purchases of some coffee mugs and t-shirts if you like. We would appreciate it, And but it's not a necessity. In the meantime, in the upcoming weeks, let's try our best to be safe and be secure. And if we have the opportunity, do something right or something good for somebody. Take that extra step to help somebody out. It's the right thing to do. All right, Victoria, you've got the control panel back. I'm going to to switch it over here in just a second. Talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all.
0: This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Numbooks and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee. Or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do Felon File. Click on the coffee image on the webpage to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.